welcome to Extrapolator. This is a brand new podcast hosted by me, Jeff Allen, and I think the title of the podcast will become clear by the end of this first episode. I plan to release an initial eight episodes in this first season, and the topics that I intend to cover are really to be found at the intersection of science and philosophy. One spoiler here is that I'm currently studying a master's in philosophy of science. Well, the longer title being History and Philosophy of Science. So I think that quite usefully sums up the specific background and interest that I'm bringing to the table. The topics that have really commanded my attention during my adult life are all related to our scientific and philosophical understanding of ourselves as humans, human minds versus non-human animals or AI. But more broadly, what is true? What is real? What exists out there in reality? These discussions lead to various positions about meaning, experiences of meaningfulness, morality, religion, our outlook on the universe, and our place within it. Sorting out what is real or what is true gives us crucial information about what the world is like and what aspects of experience are simply constructed by our brains. These are the types of questions that philosophy tries to answer. They might sound annoyingly broad or vague, but they get more specific. I promise you, they get specific to the point of being annoyingly technical, so I'll try my best throughout to keep it light. So, as I say, my interests mostly relate to philosophy and science, more closely to the intersection of philosophy and science. So, what does each do? And how do they intersect? This seems as good a place to start as any. This brings us back to our main question and the title of this episode, what on earth is philosophy? I'm sure you've often heard the word philosophy and you might think of someone like Aristotle or Nietzsche, but it's quite hard to pin down what philosophy is or what philosophy does. Doesn't it just ask annoying and pointless questions? Well, no. I think it has more value than that. So, what roles or functions does philosophy play? Here is my answer. I'm going to argue that philosophy has three distinct functions. The first is procedural. Philosophy critiques the method of science, making sure that its operations are valid and its conclusions are sound. The second role is mapping. The project of philosophy itself is unique in that it forces you to knit together all of your beliefs and positions to arrive at a consistent outlook or world view. And in this way, philosophy is a method in itself. And the third role is substantive. This third function might be the one most familiar to you. Philosophy, of course, has its own content. Debates about free will, ethics, consciousness, animal rights. These are the subjects of philosophy books and philosophy lectures. Maybe you're wondering why I'm bothering to define philosophy. It might seem overly basic or elementary, but this conversation rarely happens. And even philosophers themselves often don't have a global understanding of what their project looks like. Students and teachers and writers tend to just wade in, in the typically human fashion, without stepping back or zooming out. What is the substance of what I am trying to say? What procedure does my argument follow? Is the content of my argument consistent with my other beliefs about what is true or what exists? You might call this the meta-approach. And you might be familiar with the term meta from pop culture. A meme about meme culture is meta. And a TV show can be meta if it talks about its own storytelling devices or references the fact that it's a TV show. A great example of this is in season 7 of Futurama when Bender goes to the moon and has to complete a delivery. So carrying objects on the moon is obviously a lot easier since the gravity is lower than on Earth. So Bender says, 
With one-sixth gravity, you can work and be lazy at the same time. It's like being a voice actor. And of course, meta-humour happens all the time in Rick and Morty. At random intervals, usually at the end of an episode, Rick breaks the fourth wall and references the fact that he is in a TV show. He ends two episodes in season one by saying, Wubba-lubba-dub-dub, see you guys next week. And then in the last episode of the season, he says, Roll the credits, that's the end of season one. There's now a fan theory that Rick knows he's living in a simulation, or that he knows he's the star of a TV show, and his intense competition with the Ricks from the other dimensions is his way of making sure that none of them steal his spotlight. In a season 3 episode, Rick announces, It's a Rick and Jerry adventure. Rick and Jerry episode. This is the kind of meta-humour where Rick shows his awareness of the story arc and the plot devices of the TV show itself. One last example. In the episode Morty's Mind Blowers, Rick replays segments of Morty's memories that have been erased from his brain. Morty is horrified when he sees some of the memories that have been erased, and he suggests that he should try to learn from his memories rather than just deleting them. To which Rick replies, Don't break your back creating a lesson, Morty. It's a freeform anthology. Rick has an entertaining meta-awareness of the story arc of this episode, and he assures the audience that it's a freeform anthology. Okay, that's the end of my tangent about meta-humour. We can have just as much fun with meta-philosophy. That is, philosophy that is aware of its devices, its arcs, its content its overall project. Philosophy must be self-aware. And that's why I think it's so important to step back and zoom out and define the roles that philosophy plays. Philosophy must be aware of what it is trying to do and how it is trying to do it. And this applies to students and writers and academics. So I want to return to the three roles for philosophy that I've identified. To recap, they were the procedural role, the mapping role, and the substantive role. And I'd now like to talk a little about each of them. So first, the procedural role. This is a kind of methodological check that philosophy performs on other disciplines. In the same way that meta-philosophy involves a higher-order awareness of the method of philosophy, philosophy of science involves a higher-order awareness of the method of science. Philosophy of science scrutinises the scientific method and asks questions like, what counts as evidence? What form of proof is being used? Is it deductive logic, or inductive logic, or abductive logic? How certain is the conclusion or the theory as a whole? Should theories shape future experiments? Or should experiments be free from theoretical presumptions and prejudices? Philosophy of science asks these fundamental questions about human knowledge. It loves pointing out that human science is a very messy affair. Even the way that we look at things is shaped by our theories about how the world is, and about how the world should be. So often what we believe, or what we claim to know, is shaped by historical factors, or societal factors, or cultural factors. In other words, society changes, culture changes, and what we view as scientific knowledge also changes. A very famous idea by Thomas Kuhn is that science works in successive paradigms. There are periods of normal science, where the fundamental assumptions in a given field are stable, but then a revolution upsets these assumptions, and we enter a new scientific paradigm. And there are actually many examples of these revolutions in our scientific belief. Most strikingly, the Copernican revolution changed our view of the universe. Before Copernicus, we believe that the Earth was at the centre, but since the 16th century, we view the Earth as orbiting the Sun, neither of which are at the centre of anything. There was a revolution in physics in the 17th century, with Newtonian mechanics. 
a revolution in chemistry in the 18th century, when we discovered the role of oxygen and discarded previous theories about phlogiston. A revolution in biology in the 19th century with the theory of natural selection. And a revolution in particle physics a little over a hundred years ago when we first developed quantum mechanics. The bottom line here is that we can never assume we're safe from another revolution. There is a temptation to view the progress of science with hindsight bias. Of course, we were wrong then, but we're right now. Obviously, we were wrong about the Earth being at the centre of the universe, and we were ignorant about things like oxygen and natural selection and quarks. But now, we have everything worked out. The lesson to be learned is that scientific knowledge is a product of human culture, and it changes as human culture changes. Even in our time, scientific consensus is always shifting and updating, in fields like human psychology, animal cognition, and climate science. This does not mean that science is pointless or futile or unreliable. Science has demonstrated its immense value and accuracy. It simply means that we have to scrutinise how we arrive at scientific knowledge. And this is not necessarily an issue for science itself. Science is concerned with the hard graft of generating theories and running experiments. Meanwhile, philosophy of science has a higher order function. It steps back and zooms out and looks at the mechanisms and devices and structures that produce human knowledge. Science is concerned with the fieldwork, on the ground and in the lab, and philosophy asks the higher order questions about the human knowledge-making process. Next week's episode will be centred around human knowledge. I'll discuss questions like what is true, what exists, what is real. These questions unavoidably lead back to questions of human knowledge. How can we know what is true? How can we know what exists? But more on that next week. Philosophy's second function is mapping. When I say mapping, I'm describing the method of philosophy in itself, not to be confused with philosophy that assesses the method of science. One reason why philosophy is so valuable is because it has its own unique method, its own toolkit. Of course, many disciplines boast that they provide a unique way of seeing the world, and in many cases, it is true. Historiography tells us that the current state of the world is the result of complex and contingent historical factors. Sociology tells us that human culture and behaviour involve a nebulous web of roles and performances, which leaves us straitjacketed by institutional practices. Meanwhile, evolutionary psychology tells us that our behaviours and states of mind are best understood as adaptations to evolutionary pressures. There are many ways of seeing the world, and no one discipline enjoys a monopoly. So philosophy is one of these disciplinary methods. But what is unique about philosophy is that it forces you to have a reasoned outlook or worldview. A philosophical worldview is a synthesis of all your beliefs and positions and theories. Philosophy requires you to knit together all of your claims about the world to arrive at a robust and consistent outlook on the world. A claim that you make about the human mind can't contradict some other claim about morality or truth. Good philosophers are pedantic about cogency, coherence, non-contradiction, valid argumentation, and overall consistency between positions. When I talk about a position, I mean a standpoint or a stance in a philosophical debate. So it may be your position that free will has been disproven by modern neuroscience. Or it may be your position that free will is just an evolutionary property and it's perfectly consistent with modern science. And you can also refer to someone's political position, as in Trump's position on immigration is that it should be halted to make America great again.
Good philosophy is all about robust positions. A philosopher will have their own position on a wide range of issues, and each must be cogent and justified by reasoned argument or evidence. Moreover, these positions must form an overall programme. One way to view the method of philosophy is in terms of unpacking philosophical claims and mapping out competing positions. This was the hardest part for me when I started philosophy. I was only a casual reader of philosophy in my teens, thanks to one teacher in particular who lent me books. And isn't that so often how the story goes? Without that one teacher, I might have discovered philosophy much later, or not at all. I had certain questions about the world, but I didn't know that there was a name for the subject that routinely asks such questions. So, fast forward to college. I was 18 when I took my first philosophy class. And just like at the start of anything, I had no concept of the overall project of philosophy. I had to just wade in and lash out randomly at the arguments that seemed somehow wrong or offensive. But I had no overall program in mind. If real life was like Rick and Morty, I was Jerry just bumbling along with no meta-awareness of the devices I was using or of the implications of my arguments. But we don't want to be like Jerry. We want to be like Rick. We want to be aware of the overall program, the steps that we're taking and where those steps are leading us. Eventually, in my third or fourth year of undergrad philosophy, I started to form an idea of this program. Once this happens, it actually saves you a lot of mental energy going forward. Suddenly, when I saw an argument, I knew quite quickly what it implied and where it fit in my overall program. As an example, let's take Sam Harris's argument in The Moral Landscape. Sam Harris argues that there are objective moral truths. He calls these peaks and troughs on the moral landscape. He says that any person, regardless of culture or society, can identify peaks of human flourishing. And these peaks are objective because there are objective facts about brains and suffering. So it is possible to identify one moral code that applies to all humans and even to all animals. So let's ask what kind of program or worldview this implies. Right now you might think, okay, that sounds kind of plausible, and this is a very natural reaction. This was my reaction to every piece of philosophy when I first started. But philosophical thinking involves unpacking various arguments. So let's unpack this claim from Sam Harris and see what elements it contains. The best way to tackle a new idea like this is to map it onto existing positions and beliefs, and to look at the supporting arguments and assumptions. First, it appears that this is a secular morality. It looks to brains, and not gods, for guidance. So Harris's program is not consistent with some religious views, and unsurprisingly since he's a famous atheist. Also. It sounds like reductive physicalism, that is, reducing all behaviour and culture to physical bodies. What is morally bad is suffering, and this is a physical brain state. And this position is also unsurprising from Sam Harris. He thinks that free will is a myth, since it is not evidenced in the body or in physical brain activity. But you might not like reductive physicalism. If you are someone who believes that blood and tissue and neurons cannot explain things like falling in love or being mind-blown by live music, then you might not agree with reductive physicalism. So you might not agree with Harris's moral landscape of right and wrong based on brain states. And further, Harris's program requires moral realism. This is a meta-ethical position that moral truths are real, that they exist independently of humans believing in them, or upholding them, or even knowing about them. And this is indeed the end of the line for me. I do not believe that morality exists outside of the human imagination. 
I am not a moral realist, so I do not believe in objective peaks and troughs. I will slowly make my way towards the topic of morality and say a little more about it in episode 7. So what we've just done is taken Harris's argument for moral peaks and troughs and mapped it onto surrounding positions. It entails several things. A non-religious basis for morality. So far, so good. A reductive physicalism. Well, I'm certainly a physicalist, but perhaps certain things cannot be reduced to nerve impulses or quarks. And also, moral realism. For me, this points to a fundamental disagreement between me and Sam. That's how I just went about mapping an argument onto my existing worldview. When you're aware of your own programme, you're aware of how new arguments align with or offend existing beliefs. And this shouldn't make you overly prejudiced. A programme should always be open to revision. Rather, it gives you a mental map of the intellectual battleground, where arguments and positions stand in relation to one another. That is philosophy's second function, in my view. The toolkit that philosophy provides allows you to map out the possible positions and to formulate a consistent programme. The third and final function is the one I call substantive. This is the content of philosophy. All the topics you've heard being discussed by philosophers. Morality, truth, consciousness, free will, identity, time, and metaphysics. I'll skip straight to the one really important underlying question. Which topics should be within the scope of philosophy? It is not a case of anything goes with philosophy topics. Philosophy is not pharmaceutical science. There are obviously some topics that properly belong to philosophy, and others which do not. So, how do we define the proper substance of philosophy? To answer this question, I want to look at the relationship between philosophy and science. The contrast between philosophy and science comes down to two factors, as I see it. 1. The use of empirical evidence, or focus on empirical evidence or practice of referring to empirical evidence, and two, the activity of theorizing or postulating or extrapolating. Using those two factors, we can construct two extreme definitions, uh, not the ones that I would agree with, but useful as a starting point. Science is empirical evidence only, with no postulation or theorizing. This view of science is summed up by the phrase, shut up and calculate. We don't care what the equation means or what the data might imply. Don't make any inferences. Don't postulate. Don't extrapolate. Just look at the empirical data. And in direct opposition to this extreme definition of science, we can formulate an extreme definition of philosophy. Philosophy is postulation and theorising only, with no use of empirical data. And I'm not just playing devil's advocate here. Some respected philosophers have really argued for this view of philosophy. Wittgenstein, in Philosophical Investigations, makes this exact argument, that philosophy is the antithesis of science and other empirical fact-finding. Wittgenstein says, and I quote, Logic shouldn't concern itself with whether things actually happen in this or that way. It arises neither from an interest in the facts of nature, nor from a need to grasp causal connections, or to hunt out new facts. End quote. Wittgenstein's definition of philosophy is purely related to language, and not to any facts about the actual world. As if we could solve all relevant problems without referring to the world at all. And I'll give you one more quote. Our considerations must not be scientific ones. The philosophical problems are not empirical problems. They are solved through an insight into the workings of our language. They are solved not by coming up with new discoveries, 
but by assembling what we have long been familiar with. End quote. The way Wittgenstein sees it, once empirical facts enter the picture, it is no longer philosophy. Empirical work is science, and philosophy is the antithesis of this work. Wittgenstein's view of philosophy gives philosophers a bad name. This kind of thing is often called armchair philosophy, precisely because it gives philosophers a license to sit comfortably at home and solve all the intellectual issues without interacting with the world. Armchair philosophy claims it doesn't need the scientific procedure for proving facts about the world, and doesn't need to refer to any of these facts themselves. Morality is an abstract, intellectual problem, not a problem that relates to facts about the actual world, as it is. Well, I disagree. It is my strong view that philosophy must always start with empirical facts. What philosophy does, that is, the content or substance of philosophy, is extrapolation from current knowledge to proposed future knowledge. And you probably see where I'm going with this. But first, I want to rant about armchair philosophy, the type that is thoroughly unempirical. And this is quite a significant portion of philosophy, especially in the history of philosophy. I developed this passionate objection when I read Heidegger for the first time, at the age of 21. In his book Being and Time, Heidegger describes how human beings interpret the world. For Heidegger, interpretation involves for structures and as structures. Spoiler, if this sounds like nonsense, that's because it is. So, Heidegger says, interpretation involves a for structure, which is in turn made up of for having, for sight, and for conception. And only with this for having, foresight, and for conception, is it possible to have an as structure, whereby we interpret an entity as a chair or as a flower. So there you go. It's a combination of for having, foresight, and for conception that come together to give rise to an as structure, and that's how minds interpret the world. Uh, well, it's not. That is to say, we have no evidence that these processes exist as Heidegger describes them. And the worst part is that there is no question of needing any empirical basis for making these claims. As Heidegger sees it, he can provide a perfectly adequate description of the mental processes of interpretation from his armchair. And this reveals the tone and the focus of so much philosophy. Some philosophers think that they can make claims about the mind on a par with empirical claims without engaging with any evidence. Philosophy is a game with its own rules, and armchair philosophy has just as much insight into the processes of the human mind as clinical neuroscience. Uh, except that it doesn't. Nonetheless, plenty of philosophers still settle into the philosophical armchair, without referring to brains or evolution or the laws of physics or whatever relevant starting point. They think that finding out about the truth of the world is simply a matter of thinking hard enough. And I suppose this could be described as pissing into the wind. Of course, Heidegger was writing in the tradition of continental philosophy, so we shouldn't have had such high hopes. But this attitude is still to be found among analytic philosophers. Also, granted, Being in Time was first published in 1927, and psychology as a discipline was only about 50 years old, but this kind of blind postulation still goes on in modern debates. One modern example can be found in John McDowell's book, Mind and World. In chapter 3 of this book, McDowell looks at the differences between humans and animals, and I'll be looking at this topic myself in episode 3. McDowell argues that human perception is fundamentally different from animal perception, because human perception is conceptual, in that we apply concepts to the objects we perceive. We see a chair, or a flower, or a friend, and never the raw perceptual stimuli themselves. McDowell believes that humans always perceive by way of these concepts, which is, by the way, part of his overall Kantian view of the mind. 
But the result of this position is that human perception and animal perception are different. Humans perceive by way of concepts, animals do not. But the obvious response to this argument is, eh, and where's your evidence? McDowell presents absolutely no empirical basis for this distinction between human perception and animal perception. He has, from his armchair, told us what human minds are like and what animal minds are like. He is a philosopher, so he doesn't need observation experiments or MRI data or any of the grubby content of neuroscience. Well, except that he does. Claims about the mind must necessarily refer to empirical science about the brain. Philosophy does not have a license to ignore empirical facts. Well, it can, but then it's most likely going to be nonsense. Some philosophers might like to stick to pure armchair theorising and then to check at the end if everything matches up okay with empirical science, and that's fine, but it won't get you anywhere fast. Philosophy is ultimately trying to produce knowledge about the world. It saves several steps if we start with the current science, that is, what is currently known about the world, and philosophy can go from there. So we need to update our earlier definitions of science and philosophy. Philosophy is, here we go, philosophy is extrapolation from empirical theories. What philosophy does, or what philosophy should do, is start with the current science about the brain or about evolution, and then extrapolate by making new claims beyond the reach of current empirical research. Questions about consciousness or free will must necessarily start with brains, but they cannot yet end with brains. Our current science does not have the answers. Yet. I believe that these are questions for future science. So, in the meantime, philosophy extrapolates to the most plausible theories, based on current research and paving the way for future research. This ensures that philosophy makes claims which are relevant and accurate and robust. It is the only way that philosophy can hope to create new knowledge and to describe the world in accurate ways. So, in a nutshell, that is the proper content of philosophy. I can even reduce my definition of the content of philosophy to just one word. Philosophy is extrapolation. My own view aligns with Patricia Churchland's view. Churchland says that philosophy is proto-science. Philosophy asks questions which are beyond the scope of current science, but which will be answerable by science in the future, so they are proto-scientific questions. I think this is a very useful conception of the role that philosophy should play. It can work hand-in-hand hand with science, referring to what is currently known and extrapolating to possible implications. And crucially, the claims that philosophy makes now may be shown to be wrong as soon as we have the tools to conduct the right research. But the goal for philosophy is just to get as close to the mark as possible. Maybe you think this all sounds a bit fruitless. Wouldn't it be better if I was doing hard science, rather than pissing into the wind alongside a load of academics? In fact, Philosophy is so exciting precisely because it is at the cutting edge of human knowledge. If philosophy is proto-science, then it is always pushing our knowledge beyond current boundaries. Clinical psychology is old news. The nature of consciousness, however, that is the real mystery. For now. And I firmly believe that there are degrees of pissing into the wind. The reckless abandon of armchair philosophers will get you nowhere fast. It is unlikely to produce accurate claims about the world, or knowledge that will stand the scrutiny of future science. Whereas, if we start with our best scientific theories and extrapolate carefully, then we have a decent chance of coming quite close to the mark. It may seem redundant and self-evident to argue that philosophy should refer to science, but it is not even a mainstream or dominant idea. Many rational people still see philosophy as kind of its own thing, 
and a law unto itself, not bound by the constraints of something as mundane as the natural sciences. And this view of philosophy as proto-science is very much in keeping with the history of philosophy as a discipline. The philosophy that was practiced in ancient Greece was called natural philosophy, and this included things that we now consider to be physics and psychology and many other disciplines. Over the course of centuries, these disciplines broke away from natural philosophy once they had the tools to become empirical science. First with physics, then chemistry, then biology, and most recently, psychology, which became an empirical field of its own only 150 years ago. For the record, the term science was only coined in the 19th century, so the modern conception of science that we now take to be commonplace is in fact very new. But that's another matter. The history of natural philosophy points to the fact that subfields broke away once they gained the right empirical tools. I believe that this will certainly happen with many topics that we currently consider to be philosophy. I foresee a science of consciousness, a science of identity, a science of subjectivity, even a science of metaphysics. And this may sound like a contradiction in terms, but I simply mean that current claims about truth and existence and ontology will slowly become supported or unsupported by evidence. The issue of metaphysics is always tricky. As the name suggests, it goes over and above physics and tries to answer more fundamental questions about reality. What is real? What exists? What is existence? And also, what is the identity of an object? How do we identify objects and identify ourselves? How can identities change? And how is this caused? There are also questions about time and space. Is time something real, out there in the world? Or is time just a unique feature of human experience? And I love that topic, by the way. Philosophers have mixed feelings about metaphysics. At the start of the 20th century, the logical positivists rejected metaphysics altogether because there could be no observable answers. Of course, it is still a central topic for philosophy today, but some philosophers still feel very wary about metaphysics. In particular, constructivists and postmodernists are wary about all human truth claims. Social constructivists think that metaphysics is unknowable, since all knowledge is simply a construct of a particular time and place, subject to particular historical and sociocultural conditions. And since we cannot step outside of those conditions, we cannot sort any metaphysical truths from mere cultural construct. So the whole endeavour is doomed. This will be a central topic for the next episode. I'll be talking about truth, existence and reality, and whether everything is just a construct. What I will say in defence of metaphysics is that it has enjoyed the same progression as natural philosophy. Claims that Aristotle made, then metaphysical claims about the laws of motion and how matter is composed, these are now topics for routine empirical physics. Metaphysics begets empirical science, as our knowledge extends over time. So, what is the difference between metaphysical claims and empirical claims? Arguably, nothing, apart from currently available evidence and methods. Empirical claims are those which are supported by current theories and research and evidence. Metaphysical claims are those which are not, but they may become the subject of reputable science in centuries to come. In the meantime, philosophy acts as the bridge, connecting the currently empirical with the metaphysical. Philosophy tentatively reaches out, it extends and extrapolates towards metaphysical facts which are currently out of empirical reach. Of course, you may think that there is no such thing as metaphysical facts, but more on that next week. I will concede that this process is most likely asymptotic. An asymptote is a line which gets infinitesimally close to a point, but never reaches it, 
and our increasing knowledge of the fabric of reality may well be asymptotic, in that we can get closer to some non-existent state of full knowledge, but we can never reach it. In fact, since the universe is infinite, it is perhaps, quite literally, unknowable in its entirety. But I'm not that interested in serial box logic and snappy one-liners. Metaethics is one field that is probably subject to such asymptotic constraints. I have already said that I don't believe in objective moral truths. There is no moral peak to be discovered, like the speed of light. But having said that, ethics certainly benefits from increasing knowledge of the natural world. Ethics is absolutely contingent upon facts about evolutionary history and animal brains and prenatal development and so on. Any moral claim must be informed by relevant facts about how animals experience pain or about the development of an embryo and a fetus. We will always benefit from increasing insight into these faculties and processes and we can update our ethical theories accordingly. One rather chilling example is found in the history of racism. Even until World War II, there was a type of scientific racism that tried to point to biological differences between races as a basis for racial superiority. It was, in fact, science in the 20th century that finally put this idea to bed. We, of course, look to facts about the world to inform our ethical theories. Universal human rights assumes a biological fact about the human race, that we are all members of the same species. Our ethical theories will always be updated as new facts emerge, and such will be the way of animal rights, I believe. The point I am making is not that there are objective moral truths, but rather that our morality is informed by objective facts. Metaethics will never arrive at an empirical answer like the speed of light, but it will benefit from an asymptotic extension of human knowledge about the world. So I want to stress again, perhaps to your surprise, that this is not a mainstream or dominant idea. The approach that I am insisting upon, philosophizing from an empirical starting place, this is one of many competing theories about metaphilosophy. My type of empirical philosophy is sometimes called naturalized or naturalistic. It aims to bring traditional philosophical debates in line with empirical science, and it entertains only natural entities and processes, and not the supernatural or non-physical. But it is still controversial to view philosophy as being subservient to empirical considerations. Many philosophers still want to view philosophy as an autonomous language game, an exercise in logic and abstract reasoning that can operate outside the domain of science, and moreover, make discoveries or insight in spite of the empirical evidence. It is important for me to frame this controversy, because I'm aware that you, dear listener, may be new to philosophy, and I welcome you as a category of listener. So, when you consider my arguments in favour of extrapolation from an empirical starting place, I don't want you to assume that I am peddling some common ideology or filling this podcast hour with low-hanging fruit. I am making a contentious challenge for metaphilosophy. Granted, it's not completely ground-breaking, but it is at least ground-moving. And I just wanted to get that out there, for the record. So, the final question for this episode is, where does this leave science? We rejected Wittgenstein's extreme definition of philosophy, which worked in the absence of empirical evidence, and our updated definition of philosophy is empirical evidence plus extrapolation. What about our extreme definition of science? Is the shut-up-and-calculate view correct? I don't think so. Legitimate science involves some degree of reaching out, beyond the mere equations, pointing to what the maths entails or implies about the world. For example, the mathematics of quantum mechanics stand to tell us much about the world. 
In quantum mechanics, the quantum wave function describes the evolution of a particle. If you've heard anything about quantum mechanics, you'll know that quantum behavior is really weird. That is, the behavior of microscopic particles is really weird in comparison to the macroscopic world that we experience. There seem to be two sets of laws to describe two different worlds. The everyday macroscopic world that we see around us, and the tiny microscopic world of quantum particles. Long story short, the mathematics of quantum mechanics tells us how particles behave. Therefore, if we look behind the maths and beyond the maths, we can get an insight into what reality is really like. The mathematical wave function is a description of the behavior of a particle, or as close to one as we can manage. So the maths can tell us what reality is really like, and what particles are really like, even if the answer is weird. That is what I mean when I say we can extrapolate from physics to reach philosophical claims about reality and existence. But some scientists disagree. Werner Heisenberg, a famous theoretical physicist, argued that the quantum wave function can tell us nothing about reality. Heisenberg saw the maths as representing not the behaviour of the particle, but rather our knowledge about the particle. The wave function only describes what we think will happen next. It describes our subjective knowledge and our observations. In other words, we cannot know what reality is really like. We cannot know what particle behaviour is really like. Stop asking what the mathematics mean, shut up and calculate. I think that this is a very discouraging and unproductive outlook. What are we trying to do with the joint project of science and philosophy except describe reality? As we will see in the next episode, when we come to talk about reality, some philosophers and scientists are reluctant to make the leap between what we know and what is real. They think that our knowledge is never sufficient to truly describe reality. But that's the conversation for next time. My own view of the quantum wave function is that it can tell us about what particles are really like, and about what reality is really like. And thankfully, I'm in good company. Many theoretical physicists, such as Bohm, Gerardi and Einstein, also take this view. So, science involves more than shut up and calculate. Science does extend and reach out tracing a dotted line outwards towards wider implications. Science involves some degree of extrapolation. Then, what's the difference between science and philosophy? They both involve empirical evidence in some way, and they both involve extrapolation in some way. The difference is not as great as you might assume, and not as great as our earlier extreme definitions would have you believe. The difference is a small matter of focus. Science focuses more on the empirical end. It does the important work of gathering data, conducting research and experiments, getting its hands dirty in a way that philosophy doesn't. Science does involve some extrapolation, but it must be more restrained and more modest. Science can stray less far from what is currently observable. It must follow stricter guidelines about levels of certainty and burdens of proof. There is less room for conjecture. Where science does extend itself, tracing a dotted line outwards, it must go less far, and it must stay closer to the realms of current experiment, current research, and current proof. Philosophy, on the other hand, has a license for wilder extrapolation. It always went further, whether postulating about the composition of matter 2,000 years ago, or today, theorising about the mind or the nature of time. Philosophy is different, because it doesn't concern itself directly with the data-gathering processes, and because it acts as proto-science, extrapolating further. And there you have it. This has been The Three Functions of Philosophy, as I see it. So if you've been wondering, what on earth is philosophy, if it's been keeping you awake at night, now you have at least one type of answer. 
I'll treat you to the 30-second summary. The first role is procedural, in that philosophy critiques the method of science and other disciplines, making sure that its operations are valid and rational. The second role is mapping. Philosophy offers a unique skill set that helps you to form an overall program or outlook or way of seeing the world. And the third role is substantive, as in the content of philosophical papers and lectures and debates. These topics are proto-scientific, and the strongest claims are made by extrapolating from empirical theories. Thanks for listening, and thanks in particular to my good friend, Chiara Lacroix, since a lot of this episode was inspired by our email correspondence. In fact, her pessimism about the uselessness of philosophy was incredibly helpful for solidifying my own views. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by graphic designer and esteemed twin, Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me and it will be available very soon, if not now, on Spotify and other streaming platforms. You can search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. You'll find a bibliography for this episode, as well as the other episodes in this season, on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com. I hope you'll join me next time, when we'll really start to get into the good stuff. Keep an eye out for Episode 2, Truth, Existence, and reality. Until next time.